The world around us is changing faster than ever before. From automation, artificial intelligence, big data, geolocation, to every aspect of how we work and live. This includes data. Welcome Welcome, to Data Gurus Podcast. Our mission is to bring you a real-life perspective on what's happening in the industry and how successful companies and individuals in this niche navigate through the sea of change. Encouraging you to be bold, be brave, and be fearless. Let's navigate the data ecosystem together. Welcome to the Data Gurus Podcast. Welcome to another episode of Data Gurus. I have Laura Chaibi here with me, who is the head of all digital research for MBC Group. Hi, Laura. Time to welcome this week's Data Guru. Hi, nice to speak to you, Seema. Thank you so much for making this happen. I know with time zones and travel, it's been difficult, but I really appreciate you taking the time. My pleasure. So, Laura, I want to give our listeners a little bit of perspective in terms of what your role is at MBC Group. Sure. I'm, I'm actually Canadian and I spent nearly 20 years living in the UK where I cut my teeth on, on research. I was actually a marketer and I said, this industry is not for me. And I moved into research and specifically, I was right at the cutting edge time of digital. And I started out my career in digital media measurement and research. And I progressed with the industry, grew up on the internet and am moving from always publisher side. I've worked for Yahoo, BBC, AOL, France Telecom Orange. And And then basically, I moved into an international role and I was finding it was the most difficult to conduct my job in Mm -hmm. the Middle East. And that's actually how I ended up in the Middle East, out of pure frustration of working with some of the biggest brands in the world with their advertising and them going, why can I not get any information on this region? And equally, when I was trying to commission projects, why were they pretty much coming back almost incomplete or inconclusive? And so that's why I moved here, because I thought someone's got to clean this up or figure out why it's not possible to do our jobs. And how long have you been in Dubai for? So I've been based here for three years now. And with Yahoo, I was coming back and forth for five years. So I have now about eight years experience of the Middle East, North Africa territory, which is it actually covers 22 countries, the 22 Arab states and the region calls themselves MENA, Middle East, North Africa, which covers most of the Arab speaking countries. So what are some of the challenges that you face? I mean, clearly you were facing them. You decided to move to Dubai to really figure out why is this so difficult? Have you found out the root causes to some of the challenges? Yes. (laughs) Yes. Okay, so let's purely from a research point of view, because there's obviously there's sure. digital, there's research, there's measurement, there's like syndicate, there's so many strands in the media research world right. of how we, we, we use and, and cut across our discipline. So first of all, from let's just talk pure market research point of view. Okay. First and foremost, most of these countries do not have establishment surveys. So when you're trying to do effective sampling and trying to create weighting frameworks or, you know, what should your recruitment strategy be? to profile or do market sizing, most of the underpinning of that information, it just doesn't exist. So whenever you are doing a survey, whether it's telephone, face-to-face obviously is, uh, and it has its own special case trying to survey women with veils and and men can interview women in some countries. But the most difficult thing is, is if you haven't got a framework to start with, how do you know who to speak to, to feel that you are accurately representing who you're speaking to and can statistically weight up and model who 
is not being spoken to but could be equally represented in your outputs to make decisions from. Interesting. So, so that's, that's really, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, so like in the States, we have census data, we have other sources Correct. from the government that gives us Correct. the total universe, if you will. In these countries, yes. or many of these Correct. countries, they don't have that information. If they do have it, the thing is the movement in the regions are so dynamic, even mm-hmm. if they did have it, it would probably become out of date very quickly. So for example, living in the United Arab Emirates in Dubai, 88% of the population are expats. So they're here on work visas. No one can get a permanent residency. You either have to be born here and be a local or you're a foreigner and you are able to live here tied to your employment visa. The moment that visa ends, you need to leave. And equally, what might happen is if it's a year of a renewal for your visa with the information that is published by the government, you would be double counted in that year for your for your old visa and for your new visa. So on top of that, if you look at some of the other Arab states, you know, even if you look at Facebook data, someone may say they're from Syria or they're from Lebanon or some other, you know, Levant country. This is mm-hmm. this is a subset region within the Middle East, North Africa. But actually now they're living in Turkey or they're living in Germany. And so when you're looking at probabilistic data versus deterministic data, the probabilistic data is saying they've claimed they're living somewhere, but their digital IP data is saying they're absolutely not in that country. It's messy. It's very messy, right? Yeah, it's dynamic. If <laughs> it's you want dynamic. to do That's like real mental gymnastics, yeah. come to work in the Middle East. <laughs> <laughs> so that that was the first challenge that you pointed out. Is there are there yeah. other challenges that are kind of the root drivers as to why it makes it so much more complex? Well, there there are several things. So I work specifically. My career has been always digital media measurement for digital publishers, and then specifically on the commercial side, understanding audience measurement across digital platforms to really understand either driving media decision makings or or the success of advertising. Another challenge that really slapped me in the face I didn't expect was when I moved here three years ago, almost 80% of our consumption for some of our key digital platforms, like for example, we have video on demand platforms that have been going in this region for nearly 10 years. A lot of people are surprised how early the region moved. They were already nearly 80% mobile consumption. And when people move into, yeah, unbelievable. I I was like all of my tricks of the trade. So at Yahoo, I used to have my own consumer panels. I used to recruit off of our website or through email. People were very willing to give feedback. It was like I literally hit a dead end. I didn't have a recruitment strategy because I didn't have a way in to recruit off of our website. To try and recruit off of native app environments is like very dubious. This region is very shy on giving feedback, let alone on the brands that they're willing to have relationships with or equally if you're trying to recruit and you have a third party vendor who's going to like host your community for consumer feedback, if they don't know that brand, it's very unlikely they're going to engage with them. And across these member states, you have very high GCC, which is the Gulf Cooperation Council. These are the oil-rich countries. They're relatively well off. And so they're not necessarily money-driven to join a consumer panel. And it's not culturally a norm to give feedback. Mm -hmm. And so it's very challenging to speak to the right kinds of audiences for research purposes. And then you'll have other countries like North Africa, where you've got Egypt, Algeria, Tunisia, Morocco. And they are very low GDP gross domestic product uh, countries. And so in some of these countries, they might join panels. And I had an issue where you could have one individual with 30 SIM cards that have, you know, double verified their with mobile phone numbers that they are a panelist, but they're answering several surveys. So you have to be so ruthless with your speed complete, your trap 
questions, right. your straight liners on survey completion rates, and a level of micromanaging and scrutiny that I've never had to experience in any other market where I was doing research worldwide. That sounds like a very rigorous process that you have to employ to really trust the underpinnings of the data. Yeah, very, very diligent. I've had to learn the hard way. <laughs> and is this something that you do in-house or do you rely on vendors to do a lot of this cleaning in terms of being it's, able to? Well, it'll be it'll be a combination of both. So when I was previously at Yahoo, I, it was literally to the point where we had to have stand-up meetings every single day on the overnight wow. completes to understand the quality of the complete. And the challenge is, is that there are not enough vendors mm -hmm. in the region that have sample. And, and another challenge, I would say anyone trying to do research in the Middle East yes. is everything that you would expect from a Western market where the composition of the panel looks either like the internet universe or is nationally representative. None of that exists in this region. And unless you specify a quality bar and you understand what that quality bar is, you could be completely caught out. So there are, for example, some global vendors who I work with who are send, you know, selling global syndicate data to right. the open market, whether it's like 30 plus country mm -hmm. type study that marketers are making decisions from every day if they're using these planning tools or profiling tools. And if you look at the sample, for example, in Saudi Arabia, we estimate that the population is about 30 million. Right. But because it's such a young population, it's probably about 21 million, say 18 plus year olds. Of that, we think there's about 80% of the population who are locals. Mm -hmm. And so when, and then when you say, how many do you think are on the internet? The population is probably about 16, 17 million nationals who are on the internet. But if you look at the sample composition of surveys that are being used to profile this country, it will not be unsurprising where the sample is only 20% locals and 80% other. Wow. Okay. And you had talked about that their basic kind of overview of each market in each country doesn't really exist. So do you actually establish that for yourselves to be able to figure out what the weighting yeah, scheme is? Yeah, it depends. Yeah. So, well, it can be a combination. So then, you know, I'm now literally have moved into a role called market intelligence because okay. I've had to become so diligent on understanding every single source, whether it's an analyst source, a syndicate survey source, a government report and an underpinnings of the methodology there, or there's a vendor who's trying to, you know, white paper information into the market. And how are you getting your numbers? How are you making them up? And so sometimes it's coming right back to, I could take six different sources and I have to, if you think in most markets, you, you triage, you try right. triangulate sources, like yes. this is like a double factor <laughs> to try and, and go, what do we think is really going on? And then on top of that, because we're, we're an Arabic television station, we do have Western, um, whole 100% Western meaning American and English-speaking television channel stations, right. but it's still dedicated towards the Arab population. So like the level of editing that's done to television programs to make it a culturally appropriate right. is quite high. And so when you're, when you're making content decisions, you mm -hmm. actually need to find the right addressable Arabic national population within sample frameworks mm -hmm. to, to try and then you know, speak to them, get their feedback to be able to then make decisions from. And even now, if you talk on, let's say, the data level, there are like three different ways you can get information in digital. One is what's called panel base, which is typical even in the US, you know, like a Nielsen yes. panel for television or Comscore has a panel for digital. These panels are completely underdeveloped. So the data is, it's beyond ropey. Let's call it ropey. Okay. Because there's no framework for the establishment survey. Right. And that's audience 
asset-centric data, it's audience-led. The next would be what I call asset-centric data. Okay. And this is like the ability for whether it's a set-top box or a website or an app, and you've got return path data coming back from the asset on some way of measuring, and you get the census-level performance data. That's another stream of information. And then on top of that, in a lot of markets, including the Middle East, what I call network data. And network data is now typically where some platform is giving like full feed access to another company and that company is cleaning up the data to be able to give you a perspective on things. So for example, I work with App Annie, which is a global vendor and they're sure. buying all of the app download data worldwide. I, I buy, uh, there's another great company called Tubular Labs that have come out of the Silicon Valley and they're buying all of the video data. I don't know how they buy it, but they contract right. to get access to all the video data on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, Daily Motion, AOL, Twitch. And, and so this level of network data on which videos are being uploaded and consumed, this gives me at least some of my competitive intelligence to be able to work out like what is the size of my business. And mm -hmm. I've been working nearly two years with these network vendors. And in the last couple of months, I've discovered NBC is a television company. Right. It's footprint of releasing videos and the performance. In, in February, we were the 10th biggest media and entertainment company with views on YouTube. Wow. And, and it's, it's even blowing me away. That's amazing. Yeah, like for example, yeah, our Arab Idol, the, not, sorry, not an Arab Idol, the uh, the voice, which we uh -huh. have our voice, the voice kids that released, it was 40% bigger in views than the US. Wow. It was like four times bigger than the views socially in India for the same equivalent show. And so, you know, the data is not ideal because right. what I need is, it's great, I can tell you our views were 40% bigger than the US, but what I need to know is how many of them were the Arabs Definitely. in the right country of the right kind of audience for me to say, are we getting our programming right? Make Got sense? It. Yes, it does. But in some ways you are, you know, we keep talking about big data and secondary resources, but you're already leveraging smart data. data. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah. And when you, when the consumer actually downloads the app or gets to the content, do they have to enter any information at all to register so you can tie it back to a consumer or not really? So it depends. So our product is more like a Hulu model where there okay. is an AVOD advertising video on demand model, as well as an SVOD, a subscriber okay. video on demand model. And so what a lot of companies are doing, and we are one of them, mm -hmm. is you have like a free version that's ad funded. And to some extent, you can use the platform relatively anonymously with the exception of the asset measurement, that second type of data set that we use to go, whether it's a cookie dropped and hopefully not deleted or right. the measurement of the native app using an SDK, which is like the hard coding to, to give you that pass of data back. Those pieces of information can tell us non-personally identifiable behavior information. And then for those that want some level of customization, you then need to register. So we then have a registered database. And then for the paying customers, absolutely, it is first-party customer data that okay. we have access to. So you can tie some of that behavioral data back to a consumer or groups of consumer. It's not as robust as you would like it to be, but there is some of that linkage. There, I mean, you can certainly do cohort analysis and uh -huh. with the cookies, it is down to like a single cookie ID level. But can I say that, you know, it's Seema living in a particular state and, right. you know, this is her, what she's doing? No. Yeah. No. no. Okay. And, you know, this is, I would say, the biggest conundrum in all industries, not only the media industry, on do you really own your customer? So, like, for example, I advocate to my business, mm -hmm. as long as you keep 
supporting social login. The people who come to our services are not our customer. They are Facebook's customer in our asset. It is Google's customer in our asset. Right. And now, if you look at the way the biggest e-commerce companies of the world, like Amazon, are so aggressively owning that customer relationship, Mm -hmm. you know, if you sell products in Amazon, it is not your customer. It's Amazon's customer buying your product. And, you know, I think this, what I would call direct-to-consumer relationship and the entry bar of businesses, even even these like niche businesses on places like Instagram, being able to build relatively quickly and and efficiently their own customer base, I think it's really disrupted the customer model and equally what it's doing to what have historically been distribution models where someone else owns the customer and our responsibility is distribution. And now, if you think of Amazon, for example, with the purchase funnel going behind what we call a walled garden, meaning, you know, if you sell a product on Amazon, Amazon has exactly what they're looking at, including you and your competitors. You don't get that data. These leaves a lot of businesses vulnerable because they no longer control their supply chain management. So I think, you know, first party data, logged in data, obviously with the EU launching GDPR and the controllership of who owns the data, who processes the data. These are very interesting times. And in particular now, I don't know if you've heard just this week, Facebook or actually any country that is not within the EU, it had historically been almost managed outside of the US from their Dublin headquarters. They are now retracting that and only EU countries will be held within that European location and all other regions will now be legislated with the US legislation, including my region. I, I did see that. I did so see that. Yeah. And, and what, what's your take on, you know, how GDPR might impact your region? Do you foresee something similar coming into play or... What's your perspective? Oh my gosh, there there's so much underdevelopment <laughs> where it does. I mean, basically anyone who has any data about someone in Europe is yes. impacted by GDPR, right. even if you're not in the region. So right. yes, we have, we offer Arabic television through subscription. So if you're sitting in France or Germany and you want to subscribe, we would, we are, we have GDPR compliance as well. And we okay. are in process to making sure that we are compliant with GDPR. I think where it gets really interesting and what a lot of people in other countries might not be aware about is behind GDPR in the EU. There's also another directive and that's Mm -hmm. called the e-privacy law. And this is actually more, you know, I don't want to say harmful, but more right. alarming to the media and advertising community than even GDPR. GDPR is, is growing up and having responsibility, but e-privacy, the example of what the e-privacy policy is proposing is effectively, imagine you were a grocery store and your doors are open, someone comes in, they put all the things that they want into a basket and they walk out without ever having to pay you. Now, e-privacy, what it's saying is you should be able to enter into media environments not have to declare who you are, consume as much content as you want and leave without leaving a footprint. Oh my goodness. And so, that's, so you what know, do you do with that? that that's effectively can... what, yeah, <laughs> exactly. So I'm, I'm hoping more research will be done. And certainly I know the digital community are advocating that this really needs to be strongly managed mm-hmm. in a way that keeps ecosystems of businesses alive. I mean, the other option is then you do forced login for everyone and, and that kills business models equally of just course. as much as, as having a zero footprint right. <laughs> or like it's almost saying there's only zero and there's only 100% there's nothing in the middle and I don't think that that's really a viable uh, model and, and the then you go world. back to the days of complete mass media right because you can't target ads based on 
any kind of preference or who the demographic is? What well, we all I have to say, Seema, is yes. it's interesting times. And I, you know, what I love about being in digital, being in research specifically, is typically we are frontliners. We see movements by industries on both the business research side as well as the consumer research side far faster than anyone else in businesses. And this is why I love the industry that I'm in. That's exciting. I wanted to ask a couple of just questions that you might share with our listeners of things to consider when they're doing research in the Middle East region or the MENA region. Any tips and tricks that you would think about? Yeah. So I think, I mean, first of all, it depends on, you know, what is what is the reason for why you're doing research? I have been doing digital research almost my entire research career, and I've been satisfied with the known knowns and the limitations. And I've actually come to the point where for some of the work I'm doing now, I'm like, I'm nervous that digital will not give me the answer. And I'm having to go back to telephone survey. Oh, interesting. So it's just because I don't think I'm getting the right profile of respondents that I really need for the business to make business decisions from. And so, and also, you know, we are a television company. So I'm concerned now that if I only do online, am I effectively representing our total core audience? If if it's an omni, you know, a cross channel problem that I'm trying to solve for face to face is obviously very, very difficult, depending on which country you're aiming for. Keep in mind that there's very, very little data on establishment surveys. So if you're used to having, you know, results that are weighted up to pop population level, Mm -hmm. you really need to micromanage your effective sampling that you are recruiting for and what you're using to help inform how you're going to create that effective sample. And I would just say, don't believe anything you hear when it comes to data. Like I'll give an example. I have all kinds of companies from the US that have solutions where they're getting what I call return path data, this almost like network level data of whether it's, you know, what are SVOD platforms being used in the region and what is the consumption of the biggest TV shows worldwide and they may have partnered with apps and those apps are agreeing to give them return path data. The number one question I ask, well, two questions, first of all, is this person calling me from the USA, do you know what MENA stands for? Because if you don't even know which countries (laughs) are in my region, I already know we've got a two-year relationship for me to help you understand what you need to do. The second is with the data that you're getting to show what is successful, whether it's like what are the top games being used in the region? What are the top shows that are being ripped off? The app that you're using, is that app available in the app store in Arabic? Because like, if you tell me, great, you've got 2 million devices that are giving you data back and you're telling me what success looks like, and that app was only available in English, then actually you've got 2 million devices that are absolutely useless to me. That's that's an excellent point and probably not thought of unless you're in that specific region of research. Yeah. And you know, it would be ideal even if you're sitting in the USA and you're trying to reach like the Hispanic community Mm -hmm. or a Polish community, you know, ask the data provider what languages are the, the? I mean, let's see what happens from a privacy point of view, how long these business models can last. But right. still, so what? You've got 2 million people, they're the wrong kind, or 2 million devices, they're the wrong kind of 2 million devices. Or if you can't tell me the right ones, or we can't find a way to hack away at the data and get to some level of a purest infrastructure for what I would say is the audience I care about, then it's unlikely we can do business. That's great advice. Those so just really don't believe. Points. Yeah, and the other biggest fallacy, and I actually working, I mean, 
mean, it's a, it's a known known worldwide right. is the app download data. Even the data in the USA is completely distorted because, for example, with the US um, iTunes store, yes. there are people all over the world who are connected to the US iTunes store. And so in, in the Middle East, it's not when I worked for Yahoo, I was going into San Francisco. You go into the, the Apple store in downtown San Francisco. And I used to, before coming to the region, see Middle Eastern families walk in and buy like 10 iPhones, like right. their chocolate bars to <laughs> hand over at the other end. Those devices are set up on the US iTunes account store. So actually, this level of data, the download data, it's completely distorted because all of my audiences are linked to the US, US store. They're store. not linked to their local store. Wow, that's I had never even thought of it, but I've seen the same types yeah. of purchases. It's almost like they're shopping for armies to take back to go home and, and yeah. listen and consume. Yeah, and and, well, the problem is, is the data world is an extremely murky world. Right. And in this particular instance, I had to do primary research to show the vendor mm -hmm. that the data you have is probably running at as little as 45% complete data set and the other 55% of my audience's activity is sitting in USA data. Wow. It's not shocking when you think about it, but you have to actually be thinking about it. Yeah. And these are the kinds of things now sitting in the Middle East that I'm now literally systematically working through. Why are things so hard? Why are things not making sense on the ground? And then also plugging the Middle East into global infrastructures so that yes. other people who are at least trying to understand the region are getting some viable information to get visibility of it. That's fantastic. And have you traveled to most of the countries that you, you kind of oversee? No. <laughs> Not all of them. Some of them are quite war-torn. Yes. Um, I have been to uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, about eight. Eight out wow. of the 22. That's a lot. That's a lot. Laura, I so appreciate you being on the podcast. I know our listeners appreciate another point of view outside of the U.S. Sometimes, you know, I'm based here in the U.S. A lot of the listeners are. So it's such a treat to get a perspective from somebody who's doing research outside of our region. So really appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, it's my pleasure. <laughs> and we hope that you come back soon and visit and speak to us in the future. Thanks so much, Seema. Take care. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to Data Gurus Podcast. This episode has ended, but your exploration doesn't have to. Head over to www.datagurusepodcast.com and access all the resources and links mentioned in today's show. You'll also find bonus content available to our podcast listeners exclusively. That's www.datagurusepodcast.com. Until next time, be bold, be brave, and be fearless.